Hey folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore Latinx stories around spirituality, identity, and culture. My name is Taylor Ramaj. I'm an author and editor, and my Latina heritage is Boricua, Puerto Rican. This podcast is brought to you by Proyecto Encuentros de Gracia y Bienvenida, an LGBTQ Latinx ministry within the United Church of Christ. You can stream the show now on Podbean or subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. While you're doing that, please be sure to rate and review the show. It's been a hot minute since we recorded this episode and an even hotter minute since our last episode, but I am super excited about today's guest, Katie Simbala, and I won't keep you waiting too long to hear our conversation. We talk about that charismatic conservatism that a lot of Latinx grow up with, ministry on the outskirts, being faithfully LGBT and faithfully polyamorous, and most importantly, tamales at Christmas time. As always, you can email us for all your podcast-related comments at encuentroslatinx at gmail.com. I'm always looking for fascinating people to bring onto the show, so if you fall in that intersection of LGBTQ and Latinx, hit me up. All right, we've got a nice long episode for you today, so let's get right into this encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm super excited to have you on. Can you introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? Yep. I'm Katie Simbala, and I go by she and her. Awesome. Awesome. And what country or countries do you and your family come from? Yeah, my family's from Honduras. Both parents are from there. And I was born here in the United States. They came over back in like the in the late 70s, early 80s. My mother actually ended up in Michigan first by some weird happenstance. And then my dad followed along and took her to New York City. So that's where I was born. And did they come here? Like, was it job stuff or did they just want to change? Like what prompted them to move? I think just a better life overall. You know, it was that promise of the American dream and all that. And I think they were, um, there was a few things that they were going through, I think, in their countries that, you know, personally. But I think that ultimately it was to just give a better life for themselves and for their kids. So what is a good memory that you have either about Honduras? Have you have you gotten to go there? And if so, do you have a good memory of there? If not, then what is something about that culture that is just a good memory for you? Yeah, I just went back to Honduras not too long ago, actually. I was there last year. I traveled there with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And I was I was taken to help with translation and to also help uh, with video and photography while I was out there. So that was a really cool experience because I got to go to different places in Honduras that I had never really visited before other than just my family. And actually, while I was there, there was some sort of civil dis- civil unrest while we were there. And they actually cut the trip short and they ended up leaving after just being there for two days. But then I ended up staying and got to spend all of this extra time with my sis, uh, with my siblings over there because I have two sisters and a brother still living there. And I got to spend like 
an entire eight days with them, which was completely unexpected. And yeah, I just got to spend a lot of good time with them. My my brother, he likes to be active. So he just, he rides his bike in the mountains and he was taking me with him. And it was just a really good experience overall just to be with them. And every time I go, I just, I get treated with such hospitality. Like I think that, I think that's why my parents were the way that they were. And I see that resembled in our culture. Like everyone is just so welcoming. Everyone just wants to serve you. Everyone is asking you if you're hungry, if you're thirsty, and they just want to just meet your need where you're at. And, and and it's just the, it's always good to feel that way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's very sweet. Um, I have a note here about tamales at Christmas time. Yes. So I grew up just very connected to food, I guess. Like food was just always a thing that connected us to our culture. And uh, even though we lived in New York City and we were surrounded by mostly Puerto Rican culture, we were kind of the oddballs out. No one really understood where Honduras was or what Honduras was about. And But the one thing that my my mom always made sure to do that, you know, to make sure that we understood how we eat and our people food, which was you had to have tortillas, you had to have beans, and you had to have a hard cheese. Like that's just our typical meal. And then at Christmas time, it was these tamales. And we would sit around in, in, in a circle and just make them all of us together and wrapping them together. And then, you know, I got to choose what I wanted inside my tamales and I get to write my name on them. Like no one touched mine. And it was just, it was just a really cool like way of just uh, doing something together. And it was like a, I'm not going to say like ritual almost like, so therefore it feels almost holy, you know, like it feels like it's just this coming together that's been done time after time after time at the time, you know, like that's what their parents did and the parents before them. We had tamales at Christmas and it was beautiful to just partake in that moment, knowing that that for whatever reason is something so like staple and and it identifies us a little bit. And I think that's most of Central America. Most of Central America has their version of tamales that they do it during Christmas time. I think it's uh, my El Salvadorian brothers and sisters, like they have like Christmas sandwiches, which is like a pulled chicken in this hoagie. It's delicious. But, you know, I just remember having those memories of my Honduran culture. That's awesome. And, and I love how you said that just how much food connects you to culture, because I feel like that's definitely one way that grounded me in Boricua culture, even as distant as I was in various ways, my mother did the cooking in the house and she cooked Puerto Rican food. So, you know, I, that was one of the things. Envious of that, by the way, Puerto Rican food is delicious. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And now I, I have, I've made this dish. It's not a traditional dish at all. It's kind of this fusion thing that I made up, but it's, it's really delicious. But when I was growing up, my mom, she cooked certainly in, in more of a, of a traditional way. And that was one of the things that was like, okay, yeah, I'm Puerto Rican being fed Puerto Rican food. Like, like that was one of the constants that I had. So you grew up in the Bronx. You were surrounded by Boricua culture. What is your experience, I guess, being around so many Boricuas, being entrenched in that and then also having your own culture? I believe a lot in intersections. You know, like I think that I live in intersections, <laughs> I exist in them. And I think it was just another intersection for me. It was more like I didn't feel necessarily like an outsider because I could speak like they do. You know, like I, my Spanish is very, very, very Puerto Rican. So I didn't feel like I was outside. It's just what I was around, you know, and, and what I picked up. And at home was where we 
where we ate tortillas and we had frijoles and you know, but outside of that, we we ate arroz con habichuelas, and it never felt like I was an outsider until they would ask me, like, "Are you are you Puerto Rican?" And I'd be like, "Oh no, no, I'm not." But I didn't seem like an outsider to them because I talked like they did, I ate like they did, I went to church and worshipped like they did. There wasn't really much of a separation until we would go home, and you know, we'd have our way of doing things. I never really felt like an outsider in that sense. If anything, I embrace their culture. And, you know, every time I meet a Puerto Rican, I'm like, oh, my God, like, you know, I'll talk to them, like, you know, in their jargon. And it gave me like a way to connect with them. Yeah. So I, I, I think it was good for me to be exposed to that. Um, I think for a while I really envied not being Puerto Rican or en envied, the you know, that Puerto Rican heritage because they're so proud of it. You know, and I kind of was like. I felt weird saying like, ah, sí, los catrachos. And they'd be like, what is a catracho? I'm like, it's the equivalent of boricua. You know, it's, it's things like that. Like you, we don't have that sense of heavy pride unless you're with other Hondurans. And they were just rare to find, you know, back in like the early 90s, late 80s. So we just didn't have many friends that were in that from Honduras. That's so interesting. And I... I learned slash remembered recently because I'm pretty sure I learned this maybe several times throughout my life, but just forgot it, that there's the the joke that the Puerto Ricans have 20 Puerto Rican flags everywhere and, you know, it's just all of that, which is funny and it's it's cute, but it stems from, you know, the American colonialism and how it wasn't until like the late 50s that people were like people were not allowed to fly the Puerto Rican flag until the late 50s like it was it was suppressed so it's kind of this super like prominent expression of it and the flag everywhere and all of that is like this reaction to it not being allowed for so many years and i'm certain that somebody somewhere told me that when i was a kid and then i forgot it and then i learned it somewhere else and I forgot it. And then I relearned it again recently. And I was like, okay, I know that I've heard this before. And why is it that I keep not remembering it every single time? But I'm just remembering now that that Puerto Rican, uh, like, orgullo, like that pride. I remember it because also I learned the Puerto Rican national anthem because every morning in my regular elementary school, we would sing the American national anthem, the Puerto Rican national anthem, and the Black national anthem, like every morning, which was, now I can't get Que Bonita Bandera out of my head. <laughs> that's the wrong one. Um, La Tierra de Borinquen, that song, and then we had to do uh, Lift Every Voice and Sing. So I just grew up with like this like parallel pride, <laughs> you know, like because I know all these things and I feel so proud that I know the Puerto Rican national anthem. I'm not Puerto Rican. I don't even know the Honduran one, but somehow I've gotten, I'm in this weird fusion space of like just having and owning my, my central Americanness and knowing that I'm Central Americana for sure, but also having like injected this uh, Puerto Rican culture into me that I appreciate, you know, like it's, it was really cool to be able to pick up on those things and to hear things like what you're saying now of like, Oh, they, they were probably not even allowed to sing that song. You know, it's kind of cool to know that I, I was able to learn that and able to kind of carry that with me till this day. You know, like I'm, I'm 34 now and I still remember that I used to do that when I was in elementary school, you know. That's so fascinating to me that you had this experience of singing three different anthems because 
I didn't have that experience um, in, in my school. We just had the Pledge of Allegiance. And if we sang any national anthem, it was the American, there was the U.S. national anthem. So that's super interesting to me that that you got all three of them. Do you think that balanced out or prevented U.S. nationalism, you know, because you got other national anthems, right? Like, do you feel that the U.S. nationalism just didn't wasn't really as much of a thing? I mean, we knew we were American, but we never really owned it. Like, because our parents, you know, had just come from their country. So, you know, we spoke Spanish at home. And we knew that we weren't, like, it felt weird saying we're American. It always felt weird. Um, It's not until I got older that I started realizing, why am I afraid to say that? Because I'm not white. You know, I just grew up with this way of existing in the world that I knew that I was other from the beginning. And all that surrounded me was other. Our schools were predominantly, uh, you know, Latinx and, and Black. There were no white kids in the Bronx. I don't know. I just grew up with in a minority setting always. and and But we were the majority. That's all we were. So it wasn't until I moved to Baltimore that I started to really notice of going to school with white kids. Like that didn't happen until I moved here. And that was a weird experience. And the first thing I would do is go and look for the other Latinos, like, because it was just innate in me to just be around them and then find them and realize, oh, my gosh, the Spanish kids here are more like they just got here. You know, they're more immigrant kids, you know, from Honduras, from El Salvador, you know, from Guatemala. And here I was that could speak English completely fine and Spanish and I could exist in these two worlds. And I love that. I love being able to just know that I can be with my people and know that I can, if they need help, I can help them. Um, If they need help with their schoolwork, I would jump at the opportunity to try and help them because it was like this need to just know that you got this, you're going to get through this, you know, and, and wanting to always help in that way when I moved here. But I never really felt that. That us and and them and, and until maybe here, but even then I was I wasn't afraid of talking to white people or something like that. I just never had the opportunity to really be around them. You know, my mother grew up cleaning houses, so I just had this way of existing around white people that I just always felt kind of beneath them. And it came from you know we serve them, you know we're we're taking care of their kids. That's just what we did. What my family, all of them did. And at first, I think I had that, right? And then I moved here to Baltimore and I started to notice, oh, no, like there's no reason for me to feel that way. Like, And then um, one day where I guess I felt finally like, oh, this is what it means to be a person of color here was I, there was a car accident where basically a, a cop car ran a red light, hit the car next to me, lost control, somehow swerved all the way around and then hit my car on the driver backseat. Like, there's no way that I caused this accident. Right, right. (laughs) Like, this cop did this whole thing, hit two cars. It was a mess. And the first thing that happened is the police come on scene and the other car that got hit was children were in that car. So I was hoping that they would run to that car and they didn't. They ran straight to the cop. And then eventually when they got to me, you know, they started to ask me for my green card. Oh, geez. And I was like, wait, I, I don't I don't have a green card. You know, I'm, I was born here. And, and they're like, oh, your English is so good. And I'm just like, wait, you didn't hear me. I, I was born here, bro. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Like, it, it was like a weird, like, immediate, like, oh, show us your insurance. And I'm like, I didn't cause this accident. Where's your insurance? 
you know, it was me just knowing how insurance functions. And I was an insurance agent at the time. Like, how are you asking me? Like, yes, I do have insurance. It was just, they were trying to find any little thing to catch me in to, to kind of, I don't know, somehow get like reprimand me for what happened. And thankfully, you know, I had everything in order, you know, and, and, and I had to kind of speak up for myself and say, do you see the movement of the cop car and how the hell this happened? Like, can you see how there's no way that I caused this or anyone else caused this? Because they were trying to find someone else at fault. And it just felt really like, that was the first time that I, I think I had anyone really look at me and see my skin, see me for who I was and immediately assume that I'm foreign and like not supposed to be here or need to prove that I belong. And I think that to me was the first time and that happened here in Baltimore with Baltimore City Police. And did it hurt or bother me? It's just like I said, you know, you just learn to kind of let things roll off of you because, you know, but I didn't I didn't do anything or feel like any sort of way afterwards. It was just more of like a memory that I remember of. Yeah, this is I was pretty upset by it just because I I felt like they were treating me like like I was beneath them. That's what I felt. And maybe it comes spawning from like my experience growing up and the way that I saw myself next to white people, you know, but like that's just been my experience. Right. Yeah. Gosh. I do want to return to you were raised in the Latino evangelical church. What does worship look like there? And what are some of the differences that you notice now? The biggest difference that I notice is expression, just expression, like the way that Latinos express themselves, even when it's about a plate of food, we're expressive and very loud and we can be rambunctious about it. And this is just naturally, I think, as a people who we are, you know, and so in worship, it doesn't change. Like we respond, you know, and that can look like very similarly to what it would look like, you know, when you read Psalms, you know, worship with trumpet, worship in dance, worship with the drums, you know, it was, it was loud and it, and it was felt. And I think that was the biggest part and the biggest difference that there were things that I would feel and sense in those churches that really gave me a lot of life. Like there was a lot of things that I had gone through as a kid, you know, growing up that, you know, caused me to feel really alone caused me to feel like I was like, why am I going through this? You know? And yet somehow when I would go to church and experience what I now believe to be the presence of God, you know, I, the way, the best way that I could explain, you know, the presence of God and how that looks like and manifested in my life is I could be on my knees. I could be crying because the weight of it is heavy and I might be going through something in that moment, but in that moment, it feels so light. And it feels like I'm being surrounded and being allowed help to sustain the thing that's weighing me down. Like that's the best way that I can experience or express what the presence of God feels like for me. And there's release, you know, with crying. And those things, you don't see them in these American churches uh, that I've been to now with it, which usually now I'm, I'm associated with the, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, the ELCA, and in Lutheran congregations, that's just not something you see. And I miss it, you know, terribly because that's how I learned to have a relationship with, you know, this God 
very much through music, very much through experience and sensing and feeling and, and, and not just doing it myself where it's just me that I could feel it. No, the entire room is feeling it. So because the entire room is feeling it, now there's this corporate energy that's happening in that space that's healing. And why isn't that being experienced in these other circles? I, I don't know how to answer that. You know, I just know that maybe it has a lot to do with our culture. Maybe it has a lot to do with even indigenous ways that we probably connected to our deities that now kind of manifest in the way that we uh, worship, you know, that maybe differ from the way, you know, white Protestants that, you know, ended up here, you know, in the very beginning in the Americas, are, we're just different. You know, most indigenous people, like especially in Central America, you know, I've heard people even refer to it still as the, you know, El Gran Espíritu, the Great Spirit. I really, I, I miss that. I miss that, just that understanding of what the Spirit can do and us responding to that, you know, and it could look, like I said, a bunch of different ways, but I I really miss that. And those are the two biggest differences growing up in a, obviously in the Pentecostal church, it obviously had its flaws. It isn't affirming. So they damn everyone in anything that doesn't align with their ideologies, and that was toxic, absolutely. And they would use and abuse this manifestation of the beautiful presence of God against you in some ways because they would say God cannot be where there is sin, you know, and if you're in sin, then God isn't with you, you know, and it was all the separation talk. It was absolutely about what we did in order to keep ourselves in line with God is what we were being taught. But in reality, it was like, no, you're just teaching us how to stay in line to be a part of this congregation because there's plenty of other congregations that believe differently than you do. So what makes you correct? So I jumped around a lot in a bunch of different Pentecostal churches, everything from apostolic oneness, which is like a whole nother rabbit hole to talk about. But going from there to Trinitarian Pentecostal churches, like Church of God, Assemblies of God, and then um, also ending up in non-denominational churches because the Pentecostal churches that I belong to believe that, you know, if women wore pants, they were going to hell. If women had earrings, they were going to hell. If women cut their hair, they were going to hell. Like, I come from that realm of theological understandings. And to move from there to, oh, women are allowed to wear pants. So it was like this kind of like, exit slow exiting you know of why can't women wear pants again because it says it right here and i'm like wait a minute that doesn't make any sense because if we have to follow this law then that means we need to follow all of these other laws that follow afterward and we don't it was just a lot of me having a lot of questions and just keep moving from church to church ended up like i said the apostolic to the trinitarian to a non-denominational in all those churches i experienced just um just a different lesson i felt that god was teaching me for sure and it always felt like it was toward helping people understand a little bit deeper and a little bit more of what I experienced constantly as a child, just that manifestation of God's presence and helping others not just understand it, but experience it in a real way and help people know that that place and that space is healing and can bring wholeness. So I think that's kind of my tension right now, you know, in being in these two, like, coming from this other world that's so expressive into now this world that everything's controlled, everything's scripted, everything's read. There's no like prayers from your heart when that's all I come from. You know, I don't know not one hymn, not one hymn. You know, I'll, I'll sit in these services completely lost and I've been in church my entire life. 
So it, it's it just feels very foreign and it, you can't help but feel like it almost feels like because I can't find a place to worship the way that it makes my soul like really just like breathe again, you know, and, and if I can't find a space like that in, in, in white churches, you know, it just makes you feel, is it because I'm Latina? Like, it, it, or what, what could that be? Like, why is that? The spirit should be the thing that binds us. Why is it that the spirit is the thing that's kind of separating us? I, I don't know. I don't know. That's kind of the tension that I live in right now. Just trying to understand what exactly am I supposed to do in these spaces? Am I supposed to mask myself and then just kind of learn what they do, you know, for the sake of just belonging? Or do I keep what I am, which is extremely different and far, far from what they do, and knowing that there isn't a church right now where I can express myself this way? It's frustrating. There are certain parts of what you're saying that I connect to as well. I had a lot of my theological formation in a non-denominational evangelical mostly white church, which is certainly more expressive than what my current congregation in the United Church of Christ is in terms of the the music. And I mean, I definitely went to youth retreat camps where we would have the Saturday night altar call and it would just be this like very spiritually and emotionally intense experience. Like I had an experience of accepting Jesus Christ as my personal savior and the actual like physical experience of that. You feel new. You feel like lighter. If people haven't experienced what you're talking about, it's very hard to explain. Yeah. And that was such a central aspect of my theological formation in middle school and high school. And it was interesting because the reason why I ended up in that church is because my mom converted from the Catholicism that she grew up with. My, my abuela was like hardcore Catholic. I mean, I'm going through some boxes of stuff now and we have some things that she had in her house. And I mean, she was like deeply, deeply Catholic. And so my mom grew up that way too. And when I was really little, my mom would take me to Catholic church. So Catholic church was actually my first experience of worship. And the church that we went to was quiet energy. And there was a certain order of things and a certain way you're supposed to behave and you're supposed to be quiet and still and all of that. And my mom, about the time I was in, I guess, late elementary school or middle school, she had an experience. I don't know exactly what it was for her personally. I just know that we stopped going to the Catholic church and she found this non-denominational Protestant church. And she had this understanding of uh, being born again. And so she started going to that church. And so when I was in those formative preteen and teenager years, that was the experience that I had. And, and even up in, until college too, because I went to a Christian college um, and we definitely had times when chapel services would get that energy or or gatherings in dorm buildings would suddenly become this like holy sacred ground where God is at work. And it's it's this like tension between you're you're so heightened and you're and you feel so alive, but there's also a part of it that's kind of scary, especially for someone like me. Like I am pretty shy and I have a pretty like calm 
energy. Um, I can be expressive when I'm really, really comfortable, like totally comfortable in a space. I can be super expressive and I can be you know, all kinds of ways. And But that's only if I'm really relaxed. So it's, it's interesting because I, I definitely had bitterness toward the this evangelical non-denominational tradition that I came from as I entered into the UCC and found a much more affirming and progressive community, which is very much what I needed. And it's like I, I can and do connect to those quieter old hymns. And I, and I feel on the inside sometimes a very heightened sense of spiritual connection, even if I'm just sitting still. But I also, I'm also now in a place where I can kind of look back on some of that evangelical stuff. And I'm like, yeah, you know, we could totally get a little bit louder in the sanctuary, you know, as much as I love the old hymns, and I don't love the old hymns, necessarily because of the theology, but because I'm a writer, and, and I connect to language. And some of the, some of the old hymns are just like really poetic to me. I do find a connection in that. Well, I'm a musician. So like I come from, you know, getting set lists ready and and prepping with the band and, you know, and, and praying and asking for direction as to, you know, what, what do your people need to say this morning or what, what do you want to hear from us or what do you want to say to us? You know, and it was, it was me really trying to have a direct kind of connection with not just God, but the congregation itself, like trying to make sure that, you know, that that's how I led, you know, to, to really be able to help people into whatever, either through a season, into a season, out of a season, you know, everyone's going through something at some point. And it was, I felt like my, my call to just help them, you know, through song, get through it or understand something maybe that they didn't understand before or have breakthrough. You know, I think that music has a way of being able to help us do that. And um, I was very intentional on how I would pick songs and, and help the congregation to, to get to either all these songs are leading us towards a certain theme or, or it's taking us to kind of just a place in our hearts where maybe there needs to be some surrender or maybe there needs to be some, some vulnerability. And I felt like that, that, that vulnerability in worship I don't, I, I can't say that I've seen it in most of the Lutheran circles I've been in. I've partaken with a few UCC churches and don't think I've had that experience either. So for me, music matters heavily, not just because, oh, I want it to be lively or I want it to just sound cooler, but I want to I speak in the way that I speak to my God. I don't speak with thy, though. You know what I mean? Like, I don't. Like and you and you very well could, and that's why I'm saying like that's why we're all different. But me and the personal, if I'm going to be talking about the way that I engage with my God, I don't use old English ever. <laughs> you know, like I'm never talking to my God in that way. It's it's always going to be with, you know, the way I speak, and I try to pick songs that sound like the way I would pray, or the way that I would speak to God, or the way that I feel God would speak to me. So. I don't know. I, I music is such a big part of who I am, and it again, it doesn't seem like there's a space for what it is that I do, which is why I end up doing kind of things on my own. End up organizing little worship pop up events, 
because, you know, that's different. No one's really like we're, we're now we're going to focus on not just music, but experiencing God, uh, creating space for that. And, you know, and we, I had a, a, our first event back in February and the, the, the plan was to continue to have these in different cities and just use whatever talents were in that in that city and kind of put together a little pop up worship. So the first one that we did, we did it in Baltimore and you know, so many people showed up. I, I, like we filled the space up. We actually got in trouble f- from the location because too many people showed up. And everyone that came, you know, I remember just seeing so many people in tears, so many people just having experiences all over the room. And I think that there's a need for that because the church, the church should be a place where if you're going through something, you can weep here. You know, and not just weep here, but you know, let's let's remember that we can lay our burdens at the cross and allow God to help us with that burden. I don't know. I just think there's something beautiful about that. And there's there's a point of surrender there and vulnerability that's necessary in order for that to happen that I, I feel very, very uh, strongly and, and and called to to continue to do those things because um, they're necessary, especially for now. There's so much heaviness. I totally agree with you and and there are also ways as much as I as much as I like the melodies of of the hymns and I mean most of my knowledge of of the hymns is from the New Century hymnal that we use in my congregation and I guess a lot of other UCC congregations use which that doesn't really it kind of updates the the language a little bit and and some of the theology a little bit to take out some super problematic stuff from the older versions of things. But then there's also this way where like, even though that can feed me and it does feed me, there's this other way that I get fed where I listen to to music that is kind of more personal for me of where I feel theologically. There's my favorite band is called Me Without You. And um, I don't know if you've ever listened to them at all, but oh my gosh, this is a rabbit hole I could go down. So I'll, I'll try to be brief, but their music ranges from this like hardcore, heavy screaming to they have like a more folky sound that they do. But a lot of their, pretty much all of their music in some way, shape or form, it centers around these very uncertain experiences of God. There are tons of very deep religious references. It's not always Christian. The lead singer and his brother, they grew up in a um, in a very multi-religious household. So there's a lot of references to Rumi. I don't know if you've read Rumi's poetry at all, but they reference him a lot and they bring in some stuff from Christianity. Sometimes they they start off from more of a Muslim perspective starting point. So it's it's really interesting to like listen to or have the entire discography of their music. And I know that when I I've gotten the chance to um, to actually play some of their songs in church. I do music too, um, but not not in like a professional or regular type of way. But I grew up with music in my house. My my dad is always playing in bands. I was really little and there would be live band practice in my basement and just all this stuff. Like, so I'm, I'm very, and I, I play guitar and I sing. Sometimes I can do both at the same time. It depends on the song, 
but yeah, so like I, I also totally get the connection to music as well. And, and I certainly have that. But I know that the couple of times when I've been able to bring some Me Without You songs into my church have been times where it like it reminds me of when I was in that evangelical space and I would feel those like heightened senses of of worshiping God. I call those the, you know, spirit moments, you know, like where spirit just kind of creeps in and just allows us to sense and feel. That's the flow of the spirit. And I, I wish we would talk about it more. I wish that we would understand it a little bit better. I wish that we would make space for it more because um, I think it's something we need. When I'm thinking about that, one thing that comes to mind that it, that might be why mainline Protestant churches may not have that energy most of the time, at least in certainly what I've experienced, mostly in the UCC. But I, I've been in UCC settings, especially on the national level at General Synod, where it, it can be a little bit more charismatic, but not in the same way as when I was a teenager and in those evangelical spaces. And I, and I think one reason why that might be the case is that the conservatism and the bigotry and white supremacy and all these things that tend to be so tied up into evangelicalism, especially white evangelicalism, that, you know, the progressive spaces like the United Church of Christ might in some way be reacting to that. And so therefore it's not, and it might not be intentional. It may or may not be intentional, but it, it kind of, to me, reads like a way of being distinct from this type of Christianity that has harmed and maligned people. It's kind of unfortunate that that dichotomy is existing. And that's one of the reasons why when, I, when I've been in a UCC space where the, the music is, is like more lively and it's a little bit closer to that evangelical stuff that I grew up with, I'm like, oh, this feels like a coming together of what was good about what I experienced as a teenager and what the, the affirming space that I need to be in now, which I think is a perfect segue to get into this conversation about spirituality and religion and that intersection with your sexuality or gender identity, whatever it is that you want to talk about because I, I think you've got an interesting experience here and, and a story and a and a life that I think is important to hear. So let's jump right into it. No, so <laughs> um, I think one of the first things I have to say when diving into this subject is that I need to first say that I am first and foremost a person of faith. You know, like I think that that's just been my my identity for so long that there's no way like it doesn't make sense to take Katie and faith and separate them. They're, they're just intertwined. It's the way it's going to be. So I have always known that I was bi. Actually, for a while, I thought I was a lesbian. Um, and it wasn't until I met my husband, actually, that it was the first time that I actually felt attracted to a man. And I thought in that moment, God healed me. You know, I'm good now. You know, I don't have to worry about anything. I don't need to come out. You know, I found this guy. He loves me, you know, and, and life is going to be great. You know, and I get married and we do, we have a good life. And, you know, like any marriage, we had our downs, you know, but now we've been married for uh, going on 14 years next week. 
Congrats. Thank you. And in those 14 years, there was definitely lots of ups and downs. But then it got to a point where I think we got to our lowest point. And at that lowest point, I think we both decided, even still, even like this, I still want to be and spend the rest of my life with you. We made that really strong commitment to one another from the very beginning. It was it was really sincere. And I told him that I was uh, must be bi because before him, I had only been attracted to girls. So I told him that. I, I was honest with him. It was the first person I really ever, ever told that. And, you know, he didn't judge me. He didn't get mad at me. And I really expected him to just kind of quirk out on me because we both came from the same world. Like he was the... He was the guy that was on the worship team and played guitar super cool and oh, all the girls guy. wanted to be with him. And you know what I mean? And then here comes Katie, you know, kind of walking in one day and I just know how to play piano and I know how to sing. So I kind of immediately jump on the band and become best friends with, with him and everyone else. And it was just like, I just jumped into a place that I guess people didn't want me in kind of thing. And then when Lewis fell for me, people weren't happy about it. You know, I wasn't that girl that came from the good family. I was the girl that would come to church alone, you know, because my parents didn't go to church. You know, that it was it was all this stuff. Anyways, so um, moving forward, you know, in our marriage, I got to a point where I meet Raquel. And Raquel is my girlfriend, well, our girlfriend, and we're polyamorous. And we're a family unit, and we raise our, our four-year-old son. Obviously, extremely unique, but we are a very beautiful, just wholesome family. You know, if you go and check us out on Instagram, you'll see kind of the things that we put up. And we try to be kind of, we realize that in our community of being polyamorous, the majority of people, you know, have chosen to denounce God in, in any sort of way, which way or form, because they've been told, you know, pretty much they're damned. You know, so I think being a, a person of faith first and, and expressing, you know what, in no which way or form have I ever felt the love of God be far from my reach, you know, and, and, and being able to tell people there, you got to remember nothing will separate us from the love of God, you know, and, and, and remembering that and reiterating that to people because no one's telling them that. So anyways, I digress. I go back to the kind of my, my story of like, you know, I meet Raquel and and she just became a very, very good friend for many years. Um, she just was a very close friend of mine. We would do everything together. We would celebrate birthdays together. It wasn't, it was very not in any which way romantic. It was platonic completely. And it wasn't until one day where, you know, there was a lot of joking around happening and she ends up, you know, saying, oh, it's no big deal. Look. And she just plants a kiss on me very jokingly in front of a lot of people. It wasn't supposed to be anything you know like oh my god we're gonna do this thing behind closed doors no it was like we had this very overt moment that was very innocent and we kind of you know she gives me this peck and and i immediately realize oh no oh no oh That's no cute. no no i'm attracted to her like crap 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 like what am i supposed to do like crap crap and of course th i do what i what i always did i went to lewis i went to my husband i went straight to him and i told him oh this happened he said well did you like it and i'm like well, yeah i liked it that's kind of my issue like i don't really know what i'm supposed to do with this and he just so kindly was like you know i know you never got to explore that side of who you are and if you want you know and and if if that's something that she would like to i'm okay with you exploring this as long as we set some boundaries and, you know, that's kind of how it happened. You know, I said, okay, I ended up having a conversation with her, asking her about her feelings and how she felt. 
then all three of us ended up having a conversation and there was almost like a contractual like thing that happened like like you know my husband was like you know I'm, I'm giving you the thing I love the most please don't hurt her you know and 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 she said I agree you know and we all agreed that no one's going to come out of this hurt and whoever decides to walk away can absolutely 100% walk away and we had those conversations pretty early on before before even getting to it wasn't like I was caught or something or like I had to say something like no I, it was really in agreement between all parties to just allow myself to explore which I had never really done and so I did and that turned into into what we are now we've been together for five years now all of us together and it's it's been quite a journey and so while I'm in this space of being in a relationship with Raquel and Lewis, I'm hiding it from everyone, right? No one knows. I'm completely 100% closeted. I'm having to hide everything. And there came a point where the congregation I was serving as, as worship pastor started noticing that our numbers were going up and that they were doing kind of like surveys and asking people like, why, wh why are you coming back into the church? What keeps bringing you back? And the majority of the answers was the music we sense God here. So then it was like, they started to think, okay, well maybe what we should do as an evangelical kind of push is to maybe have the church write its own music and record its own music. And Katie, we want you to kind of be the face. And I think that any kid that, you know, grew up in church wanting to do music, hearing that is like, are you serious? Like you're going to get to use somebody else's money to make music? That's, that's the dream, right? But for whatever reason, really quickly after they mentioned that to me, I got really excited. And then immediately it was kind of like conviction of like, don't you dare stand on there on that stage and not be authentic and not be transparent as to who you are. Don't you dare. And it was like this really weird, like, whoa, okay. And I remember having that very clear moment of just that conviction hit. I tell my family, I tell them, look, this is what I feel God's telling me to do. And I think I got to do it. And I was afraid because I know I was getting paid. You know, that was my job. And after much dialogue and preparing and us preparing for the worst, I, you know, I have a conversation with the pastor and tell him, you know, that I'm Polly. And mind you, we would go to church, all three of us with our baby, you know, we acted and functioned like a complete family unit. I was on the worship team. My husband was on the worship team. And so was Raquel. Like whatever, you know, they would see if I needed somebody to run the slides, let's say for the songs, Raquel would be right there trying to help me out with whatever it was that I needed. Like they saw how we functioned. They just didn't ask any more deeper questions. So eventually I came out, I told them um, the pastor wasn't as bad as I think it could have been in other places. He was very, very kind. He affirmed me in saying that he knows that I was brought to that church to help them experience something they had never experienced before because prior to me, they had never really had expressive worship. And I was able to help them get there. And by the time I left the church, like it was the kind of congregation that when I first started there, they would have their arms crossed and have like earbuds in their ears because they didn't want to hear me. And they went from that to like knees on the ground, hands raised, belting these songs out. There was a shift in the way the church worshiped. And the pastor was like, there's no way I can't attribute that to you and what God does through you. 
He's like, there's no way that I can deny that God uses you and you have to continue. You know, he's like, please don't give up. Please find a gay-friendly church. I know they exist. I'm so sorry we're just not there yet as a church. I mean, it was kind of like a slight, he, he still let me lead worship that next Sunday after coming out, which I thought was unheard of. No one does that. And he did because I think there was just disrespect. I think he recognized that I'm called and that I'm supposed to be doing this work. And there is no way that, unfortunately, we live in a, in, a, in a time in society where people like me are really being ostracized. People like me have to be in hiding. People like me cannot be openly transparent about who they are because you can't, like, I, I struggle to uh, find a place to do ministry in just because I just, I don't fit the shape. I don't fit in. So that's kind of that intersection of like my faith and my sexuality. And, you know, I think that God led me into these outskirts, you know, that I find myself in with purpose and reason. And it's to minister to those that are out here because there's so many that are hurting and wounded and no one's ministering to them because they don't, they, they, they don't even want to recognize that poly people exist. You know, they just want to shut it down and, and name it all these awful things. But we're still people who have and need access to God. And I'm making it kind of my life's work to be able to, if I never get recognized as a minister of the gospel, if I never get recognized as a pastor or ordained as someone that could give and preach the word, that can't and should not stop me. I feel like I have to do this work because I'm called to it, regardless if there is an organization who wants to kind of put their name behind it. I think there there's plenty of work to do right now in these outskirts and I'm doing the work that I feel that I'm being called to do and it's different and it's hard and it's heavy but nonetheless I I do see how God sustains it all and I I, I really can't sit here and complain a lot because God has really kind of shown off like I live well I lack nothing like I just I want to be able to just help others see that they can indeed have a relationship with this God that they've been told they they can't. Hopefully one day things change and, you know, poly people are more accepted and affirmed, but they're not right now. And, and that's okay. You know, there have been p- plenty of prophets that had to go through a lot of different things just for the sake of God's word to be spoken. So if this is my call, what, to just not simply be affirmed in the way that I would like to be affirmed? You know, none, nonetheless, I'm being affirmed in others, in other ways. So that, I think that's where my faith and sexuality kind of intersect and and why I, I, I believe strongly on that. I, I'm standing on this side, believing that I've been called to, to these margins. Yeah. And I mean, from my perspective, God is going to work in whatever ways that God is going to work. And many times those ways are outside of the bounds of our human logic. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we operate so much in that human logic that we can't see this God who who is knowable but also exists outside of our full understanding. Like to, to say that God is outside of our, our understanding, but then to say that poly folks and other folks who are existing outside of our logic can never be called or used by God to advance God's kingdom on earth, that seems kind of 
illogical to me. And I think that everyone could just use some humility in thinking about that and not assuming what God can and cannot do and what types of people God can and cannot call. I think you bring up so many important points about how Christianity as we know it today understands and demonizes polyamory. I know that certainly there there are ways, there are aspects where I don't necessarily always understand the dynamics of it, but that does not give me any type of place to say that a poly person is not welcome in my faith community or anything like that. It just is something where, you know, just something to hold space and and just kind of accept like, okay, I may not understand and relate to that, but that doesn't mean that I can't be friends with this person or this family. And I, that doesn't mean that I can't know this family, you know, like there's, you got, you got to like get over that, that aversion and just kind of say, just kind of accept like, okay, I don't, I don't get it, but let me still allow a relationship with this person and to know and understand as best I can what their reality is. And then I think at the end of the day, when that happens, as opposed to this ostracization, then both parties are blessed. I am curious. I, I do have a question that I would love to get your thoughts on because I I feel like sometimes I it, it appears to me that there are a lot of people who are using the label of polyamory as, I don't want to say trend, but I've had some personal experience and also um, know of, of others who have used it in a way to justify certain behaviors in relationships that actually aren't that are actually toxic and I'm just I'm curious as to like because it seems like there especially in the queer community and especially among young queer folks that there's this big immersion of a lot of people saying that they're that they're poly and all all of this I'm curious from your perspective if you see a difference between between folks like your family and and your your story sounds like you know it was very intentional and open communication and all of these you know all these things that are holding everybody together and, and trying to keep everybody whole like what what do you think of that do you think that there are people that are kind of using it as a as a trend and not really you know not not really approaching it in a healthy way like, sure, like there are just toxic humans and, uh, you know, that probably should be in no relationships because they should just be working on themselves. You know, we we have an Instagram account where um, just a lot of people just ask a lot of questions and they, especially if they're going through stuff, they kind of reach out and we just try to be there for them because we know that when we were going through our stuff, you know, there was really no resource. There was really nothing around. And so we knew we wanted to kind of build community around just being able to be informative and and responsive and just give a listening ear because the, the issues that poly people go through, if you talk to people who are monogamous, you know, they'll just be like, well, why the f- are you doing that? There are people who are constantly reaching out to us, asking us, you know, how can I find a third? And if I'm honest, you know, what happened between the three of us in particular wasn't because we went out searching or trying to, we wanted to try this new thing. We didn't even know this was a thing. We literally thought we were inventing it. And so I'm coming from this in a, honestly, from a place of ignorance. 
I don't come from that kind of world where I understand that there are people that do this. You know, I just didn't. And somehow found myself here. And then later on, you know, Lewis did some research because he was trying to find, you know, there was a lot we had to go through. You know, how do you deal with jealousy? How do you deal with all these other things? And he was trying to find answers where he did research and he ended up finding, oh my God, this is a, this is a thing. This is what they're called. You know, when people come to me and ask stuff like that, I always go back to, well, why are you looking for this person? And why do, why do you feel you need to have two other people in order to be happy? Like, why, why is that your initial? Because I was happy when I was with my husband. You know, it's just, I got happier. You know, <laughs> when Raquel came in, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was so like miserable and I wanted to fix my marriage by adding another person, which is what a lot of people do sometimes. You know, it it really wasn't that. So I, I guess, unfortunately, I have an experience in this in this poly thing that is kind of rare. You know, the more I talk to people, it's it's usually they oh they want to find a third, and there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think that before anyone should be trying to get into a relationship with anyone, they should be working on themselves to become the best version of themselves so that they can love someone else. You know, kind of going in with all your baggage, not knowing how to control your ego. You know, all these things that go into play when you're in a relationship with another person. And if you haven't really even acknowledged that you have an ego that takes over sometimes, maybe, 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 <laughs> you know, you should be focusing on yourself first before even, even in a monogamous relationship, I would give that advice. I, I agree that there are people that are probably using it and using it as a, a tool to be, you know, sneakier or just like, like you said, in a very toxic way or just kind of implementing, oh, I'm poly so that they could just continue to cheat. Those are different things. Like, I mean, in Latinx communities, it's not uncommon for, you know, like we would have songs about poniéndole cuernos a la mujer, you know, putting, putting horns on a woman, you know, meaning men that cheat on women. And like, it's a whole like subculture that we all know because it was typical for a man to be unfaithful to his wife. That's not new. The thing here is that in this ethical way of doing it, you're not hiding that anymore. And I think that that's the thing that's so like, what? <laughs> because it's not that it doesn't happen, people. This isn't anything new. How many people are probably in our own circles that we know that are, had already cheated? So we're not talking something so far and out of your understanding. No, it is well within your understanding. Just simply now, we make it in a way where we're talking about it ethically. We're talking about it openly. We're not going behind anybody's back anymore. That's it. Like that's the, that's the the revolutionary part of this whole thing. And could there absolutely be poly people that still have problems with, you know, because there are people who really love to hide things. Like it's part of it's part of what kind of gets them off. You know, like there are people that love to hide to, to that that energy of the sneakiness. I don't like that at all. You know, I I, I come from a background of some sexual abuse. Hiding triggers me. So, like. Just know that there are different array of reasons why poly can work for some and not work for others. And I know that in my particular case, I feel a lot more safer in that, you know, kind of environment with these two individuals than I ever did before. So that's the way I kind of have my, in, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, fragmented or, or kind of um, like my, my perspective maybe is foggier than others because maybe I've had some sexual abuse or something like that. Like maybe, yeah, I have my things that I'm still working on, but this is a way where I felt safer. 
So that to me speaks loudly as to that this works better than this other way for me. And getting to a place of not feeling jealousy and not feeling all those things because it, you continue to feel all those things, not like they go away. You do. You're human. You feel these things. But you learn how to handle yourself better. You learn not to just kind of go off on people and be explosive and be reactive. You learn how to control yourself and maybe think about what you're about to say before you say it. And for me, this has been better in all sense of the word. But that doesn't mean it, it is or will be for everyone. I think that whole entire clarification and, and nuance that you just gave is something that a lot of people don't hear. So I'm I'm really glad that you shared all of that because I think that there definitely are just so many misconceptions about it. And and then I think once folks hear from folks like you and, and others, they can start to calm down a little bit, you know, chill out, get a better understanding. And even those people, I, I would tell them like, hey, why don't we hang out? Why don't you come to my house for dinner? Why don't I cook for you? Why don't you just spend an evening with my family and actually realize that this is actually pretty nice. Before people have, you know, a, there's something that my boss says a lot to me is, uh, you know, turn your your judgment into curiosity. Uh, know that there there could be something here. There could be some wisdom here that you're just completely pushing to the side for the sake of just saying that this thing is is unholy or this thing is damned. This thing is um, in, in no way can it fit in the order of how God created us. How about you spend some time with me? How about we spend a time in some devotion with God and you see what happens? I think that there needs to be more. I would love to interact more with people who question me harder. I really would. Because there's there's no, there's nothing here. You know, there's there's nothing but desire to lead my life in the way that God has has kind of orchestrated it for me. And with that comes asking. I didn't just jump into this. This was after much prayer. This was after much asking for confirmation, asking God to speak because I needed it. That was scary. I come from the most conservative realm that you could come from. You know, like how how did I end up here? You know, it, it's only because, man, I, I, I've i kind of, something my dad used to say to me, uh, you know, when I was a kid is um, this Bible verse, uh, Joshua 1.9, and it says, um, you know, have I not commanded you to be strong and of good courage? Trust that the Lord your God will be with you wherever you may go. You know, and I think that, that it takes a level of, of strength and, and, and courage to be doing what I'm doing right now. And um, I just hope that it all, it all pays off in the end, you know? Absolutely. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly, I, I love that curiosity approach. And that's something that I just try to do in all areas of my life because it it takes so much less negative energy to be curious about something than to be judgmental about something. And so I, I every time the whole like approach things with curiosity or a question, every time that comes up, I'm like, yes, yes, that is exactly my Brand is not the right word, but it's the only word that I can think of right now. Yeah, I mean, you should always be wanting to progress. Yeah, yeah. And constantly evolve. Yeah. So what work are you doing right now? We've talked about um, some of the music stuff you've done and some of the other ways that, that you serve, but what is it that you're doing right now? Right now, I serve as the creative director at, at the Metro DC Synod for the ELCA. 
Um, so I'm in charge of a lot of their content creation, video, photography, graphic design. And uh, so that's kind of my my day job. And um, and I also um, am working on just these uh, worship pop-ups, you know, and we call them worship experience. And we just abbreviate it to we worship experience. And basically, like I said, like I mentioned before, it's really just a space created to kind of merge these two things, the the um, spirit-led worship where it's it's you can embrace emotion, you can allow vulnerability and that space to just feel and sense, and also that it's progressive and affirming. That that merging, I feel, hasn't really quite happened yet. And I'm, I'm experimenting with it. And so we worship is kind of my my little baby that I'm experimenting with, of just this digital community that I'm building. And for anyone who came from my kind of tradition of just knowing what that feels like, knowing what I mean when I, when I say, oh man, I sense the presence of God. You know, when if you know what that means, you know you miss it. And, and I want to be able to create space for us to feel that again. And it, it is a, an affirming space that we don't have to worry about anyone saying some sort of nonsense like all gays are going to hell from the pulpit. You know, you know, it's it's creating that space that's safe and, and allows people to feel that again and not be triggered by what's saying being by the message, you know. So um, that's what I'm working on right now due to COVID. Obviously, um, you know, those those kind of meetups and gatherings had to stop. But, you know, I, I've continued doing online work. Uh, right now I'm working on a series called Toxic Theology, where we pretty much address just toxic theological premises with other clergy. Like, I'm not a clergy person. I'm just a lay person. But I have pastors, um, some theologians, um, some professors on, on these calls with me because they say yes. <laughs> and, and I just ask questions, like, coming from my perspective of from, like, the world that I come from, knowing that my community you know, should know that there's a whole under, other realm of understanding and a way to be Christian. Progressive Christians are a thing that we're not going away. People are becoming more aware of their churches not being social justice oriented. So I'm feeling like maybe right now is the time to kind of push a little bit more and be more out there and tell people like, look, there's a whole other way that you can exist and be a Christian. There's a whole side of this who believes in social justice and, and, and actually change. Not in just conserving the ways things have always been done. I think that right now is a beautiful time to just kind of be explorative and and try new things. And so that's pretty much what I'm doing now with that toxic theology thing, and um, and also like hosting little little worship nights, virtual worship nights through the through the We page. So uh, that's pretty much what I've been doing and occupying myself doing these days. That's awesome. So where can people keep up with this work? Drop us the Facebook links, the Instagrams, your ats, whatever you want to drop. Tell us right now. Okay. So like you could you could find uh, all the worship experience stuff at, uh, we don't have a website yet, but you can find everything on Facebook at a worship, uh, you know, you just do www.facebook.com forward slash worship ex. And you just hit um, enter and it should take you right to the page with um, some content. <clears throat> you can look at our videos on our live streams. And um, you could also check out my family, which is the Triad Fam, at the Triad Fam on Instagram. And you can connect with me and uh, at, at Capture, which is K-A-P, the number two U-R-E. And uh, that's mostly my photography work and just some of my thoughts that I put up sometimes. And we could talk through there if you ever want to 
kind of talk about these random things that I talk about. Amazing. I am definitely going to be following you on Instagram so that I can tag you when this episode does come out, but also so that I can keep up with all the stuff that you're doing. Um, So, and I hope that if you're listening to this out there in listener land, that you do the same. And to put a final note on this, what is one thing about being Latinx and LGBTQ that you want the rest of the world to understand? I want everyone to know that the majority of us come from conservative backgrounds. Just a lot of the Latino countries are uh, very conservative. And most queer kids who, especially if they're second generation Spanish kids here in the U.S., are usually almost always going to be kind of alone, being rejected by family. Um, And just remember that. And if you do find yourself surrounded by a kid, you know, who happens to be Latinx and and is queer, just, you know, show them a little extra love because some of the times they, they're really not getting that, you know, from their family members. Um, some are lucky, some are lucky, but most that I know of and have, have experiences with, um, that's, it's just not the case for them. So I'd say just be kind and remember that and I don't know, give us an extra hug or two. Uh, what a wonderful way to wrap this up. Thank you so much for coming on the show and, sharing your experiences with us and your stories. Um, It's fascinating. I really enjoyed this conversation. I did too, Taylor. Thanks for having me. This was great. I, I had a great time. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to keep up with Proyecto Encuentros de Gracia y Bienvenida on Facebook. You can find me personally on Instagram at TaylorRama with two R's and on Twitter at TaylorRamage. You can also find my books on Amazon. I hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.